Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 113 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. I have a really special interview to share with you today. Author and journalist Gary Taubes is joining me to talk about his latest book, The Case for Keto. Now, if you haven't encountered Gary Taubes yet, then you're in for a treat. He is arguably the most researched person with regards to the science behind lower carb eating. He's written multiple books on the subject with his most recent book recently being released, which is called The Case for Keto. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with Gary to chat about his views on the current science regarding lower carb eating, as well as some of the background that he talks about in his book, The Case for Keto, on how bias towards obesity influenced research and management of obesity for all these years. And I found that part really quite fascinating in the book because we see it play out in our modern medical education and our modern society. And so understanding how we got here is really quite interesting. I hope that you find this interview interesting and informative and make sure you check Gary's books out. They're all very good reads if you're wanting to learn more about lower carb eating. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Gary, welcome so much to the show. I'm really excited to have you here today. Well, thank you, Siobhan, and thank you for having me. I was thinking as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking back to like when I first started lower carb diets for myself and you were one of the people that I listened to. Like I went on dietdoctor.com and kind of consumed all the videos and lectures and things that they had available on that. And so you were one of my first introductions to the science behind the lower carb eating. So I thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Just for people listening who may not be as familiar with the science behind lower carbohydrate eating and the history of it, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and give kind of the Coles Notes version of your background. Okay, so I'm a journalist, not a doctor, not a PhD researcher. I do have a background in science, and my obsession as a science journalist was good science and bad science. So my first two books were on physicists and chemists who discovered non-existent fundamental phenomenon than regretted it. And I'd always been obsessed with this problem of how hard it is to do science right. And in the early 1990s, I moved into public health because some of my friends in the physics community said if I was interested in bad science, I should look at the stuff in public health. It's terrible. That's how they phrased it. And it lived down to their description. So... I was writing primarily for the journal Science at that point, doing lengthy investigative pieces. In the late 90s, I sort of stumbled into the nutrition field, looking first at this question of the evidence base for a belief that excess salt is the cause of hypertension, excess salt consumption. And while doing that story, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed, and my second book was called Bad Science, and so I thought I had interviewed some of the worst scientists in the world. One of the worst clearly took credit, not just for getting Americans on the low salt 
diet we were eating, but on the low-fat diet. And I literally got off the phone with him and called my editor at Science and said, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. I have no idea what the story is, but if this guy was involved in any substantive manner, which it turned out he was, then in I In a can, major, major way. <laughs> yeah, then I could count that there's a good story there. So I did a spent nine months working on salt and blood pressure, one magazine article, um, and then I moved into fat. Um, and heart disease, I spent a year on that. I interviewed about 140 physicians, uh, excuse me, researchers and administrators to document the history of our sort of this evidence base that dietary fat is the cause of heart disease. And at that time, it was also believed obesity. Both those articles won major science writing awards. And then I moved into obesity from there and never got out. And uh, Case for Keto is going to be my fourth book in this nutrition space, and there'll probably be two more before I'm done. And it's all kind of unpacking what I learned. I had the opportunity as an investigative journalist, not just to interview all the players in the field. So for instance, for my first book, I interviewed around 600 researchers and again, admin government administrators, people were involved in setting guidelines, that kind of work. But I also came along right when the internet made it possible to do what a lot of people do now, but back then was relatively unique, which was find virtually every primary source. Now you could almost download them. Back then I had researchers, young researchers in Boston and New York and Los Angeles, whose job was to go to the medical school libraries with lists of like 50 references I had given them. And so at one point, I'd clearly done more research on this than any human alive, and I've been unpacking that research ever since. Mm-hmm. Which I think is what makes you such a well-known name and kind of respected authority on this area of the research behind our nutrition and obesity. It's the advantage of being a journalist is, again, you get to talk to everyone. You get to learn. So for the latest book, Case for Keto, I interviewed 120-odd physicians like yourself who were sort of shifted their thinking towards carbohydrate restriction, higher fat diets for weight control and diabetes. I'm not, you know, the, having a clinical experience to base your ideas is very valuable on, but being able to base them on the clinical experience of virtually anyone in the field is unique. And getting to talk to the researchers also makes a huge difference. You don't have to read every paper. You can interview them, ask about their findings, and then you can challenge them on their findings in discussions without spending days and days and days trying to make sense of the published literature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I found in your introduction of your book, The Case for Keto, you were talking about the path that I think so many of us physicians identify with of struggling with our own weight, trying to eat the quote-unquote healthy food guide way we were taught to eat in medical school, not finding it work, and then for some reason stumbling into lower-carb eating, all of a sudden finding it worked. And then that transition of changing from doing it personally to actually using it with our patients. And I think that path will resonate with many of the people listening to this podcast. But it's interesting because you and I were talking before the show that this is like even in the time I've been in using lower-carb diets for therapeutic tools or as a therapeutic tool, I've seen the ball rolling and seen the movement growing. And yet it's not, in the physician stance, it's not really a movement solely based on evidence. It's a movement based on personal experience, then translating to clinical experience. Yeah, and 
this has been a learning experience for me in medical science, which is, you know, medicine used to be thought of as an art more than a science. And we had an evidence-based medicine movement where, which was actually also sort of launched in Canada. The idea was your conclusions on what therapies to use and what not to use should be based on randomized controlled trial results, not on clinical experience. But prior to the randomized controlled trials, which were more or less invented in the 1940s, all of medicine was based on clinical experience. So you would have a patient with a chronic disorder, like diabetes is the one I'm studying now, and nobody, well, for all intents and purposes, no one's diabetes gets better without therapy of some kind. And a physician could try a diet or try a drug, and if the patient got better, then he would try that same diet on the next patient or the next patient. And as long as it kept working, he or she would keep doing it, and eventually other physicians might hear about it, and that's how ideas spread. The problem is when clinical trials came along, the assumption was always that you could do the clinical trials well and that you could test the hypotheses well. And that doesn't turn out to be the case with obesity and diet particularly, or di even diabetes and diet particularly. So what you have is a lot of people who are struggling with an intractable condition, which is obesity. And they, you know, if it's your patients who are obese and diabetic, and we know that when, if you're doing family medicine or internal medicine, then a huge proportion of your patients are now suffering from some you know, they're on this spectrum from overweight and pre-diabetic to obese and diabetic. If you're giving them diet advice and they're getting heavier and their blood sugar is continuing to be out of control, you just can assume that they're not following it. But if the same thing is happening to you, you don't have that rationalization for why your advice doesn't seem to be working. Now you have to question whether it's the advice itself. And the interesting revelation in doing this is that lean physicians, lean healthy physicians don't have that opportunity. So if they're eating, following the conventional wisdom, if they're eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, mostly plants, beans, legumes, meat in moderation, and they're lean and healthy, then they think, they're doing works for them. They have no reason to question it. And if their patients are lean and healthy, they really have no reason to question. It's only when it stops working for you that you get this conflict between what you believe should be true, this is a healthy diet, and it's failure to keep you healthy. And then you start, if you're open-minded, you start looking for alternatives and you end up venturing into this world of fad diets. At one point, I wanted to call my book In Praise of Fad Diets, because the reason we do these diets, we try them, is because the conventional wisdom doesn't work. If I eat the way I'm told to eat, I'll be hungry and I'll gain weight. Absolutely. The people who tell me to eat that way, the authority, the establishment nutritionists, and I assume that they can, their bodies can tolerate it. My assumption is my body can't. And most of those who become obese and diabetic, some large proportion can't. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of referenced our views of what causes obesity and what causes people to gain weight are influenced in part by our own personal experiences. Like obviously, you know, if we've never struggled with our weight, it's hard to really appreciate what that looks like in a day-to-day -day life. In your book, you talk a lot about really the historical understanding of obesity and how that's led to that bias towards weight is just a problem of people overeating and just some people choose to overeat and they get 
heavier than the people that choose not to overeat. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, well, thanks. I Over the past 20 years of doing this, I keep trying to think of new ways to break through to people who have been thinking about this conventionally for their entire careers and their entire lives, and how do you get them to think about it differently? And one of the things that's always amazed me is that if you think about it intuitively, those people who struggle with their weight are different than people are naturally lean. We all experience that in elementary school and junior high school. If either we had weight problems and our friends didn't, or we knew when I was a kid, there was, you know, one or two obese kids in every school. And we didn't think of them as kids who ate too much or exercised too little. We just thought of them as kids who were built differently. Actually, there's a heartbreaking book out now called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And it's written by a young woman, a blogger, who's, I think she said she weighed 340 pounds. And she talks about all diets failing her. And she says some people are just built fat. And intuitively, we know that. Okay. And intuitively, we know, you know, I have a brother who couldn't get over, he's six foot five and couldn't get over 195 pounds if he tried. And I was three inches shorter and I played football in college and could get up to 240. I was always thick. He was always lean. We were just built differently. We both ate as much food as humanly possible. We were just built differently. And then so the question is, what regulates that difference? And what happened in obesity science is pre-1930, there were more or less two theories about obesity. One is it's gluttony and sloth, eating too much. And this sort of general perception we have, you see a character like Shakespeare's Falstaff, and they have this lust for eating and drinking, and you would you think maybe that's why they're so big. And the other was that there's some hormonal dysregulation, that it really is a hormonal problem, and some people are just built fat. And in 1930, this University of Michigan researcher named Louis Newberg comes along, and he does one study on like seven people, and he claims that he has proven that obesity is always caused by excess consumption of calories that no hormonal explanation ever works to the point where when people say, what about women when they go through menopause often gain weight and get fatter? And he writes that off as, you know, basically the housewives who no longer really care about looking sexy for their husbands and they sit around and eat bonbons with their, you know, lady friends and play bridge all day long. And it's the bonbons that, I mean, it's unbelievably sexist. And yet simultaneously, the his argument is obesity is always an eating disorder. And for a variety of crazy reasons, the counter argument was that it was a hormonal regulatory disorder was pushed by German Austrian clinical researchers who were doing the best medical science in the world at the time. And World War II comes along and the German Austrian school evaporates. And post-World War II, obesity thinking is recreated in the United States by these young doctors who had fought in the war, wouldn't read the German research literature, even though German was the lingua franca of medicine prior to World War II. If you wanted to do serious medical research, you had to be able to read German. And uh, Newberg's theory sort of carries through the war. It's embraced the first animal model of obesity is created in the late 1930s. And one clear thing with these, every animal model that's ever been invented, this, and there are dozens and dozens of them now, is the animals will get fat even if you calorie restrict them. But if you allow them to eat ad libitum, they'll eat more than lean animals, but they'll get fat anyway. So the animal model suggests that obesity is some kind of hormonal fuel partitioning disorder, you, you know, a disorder of fat storage. 
But one young researcher at Yale decided that his animals ate so much, he was going to blame obesity on eating too much because that's what Newberg did. And his animal model carried through the war. And then post-war, you have all of obesity research basically is aimed at trying to explain why people who suffer from obesity eat so much. So rather than trying to explain why they accumulate so much fat, you try to explain you're studying their appetite, their satiety mechanisms, their hunger mechanisms, and you get to the point that even when the hormone leptin is discovered in 1993 and revolutionizes obesity research, it's perceived as a satiety hormone, as a hormone that tells your brain to stop eating under the assumption that the reason you get fat is because your brain keeps eating longer than it needs to. Mm -hmm. And if you think of obesity sort of simply as a fat accumulation disorder, and then you ask the question, what regulates fat accumulation in the human body? That was pretty much worked out by the 1960s, a long research program from the 1930s through the 1960s by some very, very bright fat metabolism researchers. They tended to be physiologists, not medical doctors treating obesity. But by the mid-60s, it was clear the hormone insulin dominates fat storage. So when you elevate insulin, you store fat. To get fat out of your fat cells, you have to minimize your insulin secretion. And we secrete insulin in response to the carbohydrates in our diet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the argument, the story I'm telling that I think people have to understand is that we don't get fat because we eat too much. We get fat because our fat cells are trying to accumulate fat that we would otherwise use for energy. And you can fix that. You can re-regulate that by lowering insulin levels. And the way you do that is by restricting the carbohydrates you consume. Mm -hmm. And I found the historical discussion that you just went through just fascinating from the perspective of an obesity medicine physician. When I reflect back to my medical training, where we were told just people should eat less, exercise more, and the Atkins diet will kill you. It'll give you renal failure and kill you. And it's not sustainable. That was the extent of my obesity teaching. And then you, I view like the weight bias that is so prevalent in our system. You can see how it came to be with that as like the scientific dogma of, you know, these people that have weight are just choosing to eat too much. And the interesting thing for people listening is physicians who struggle with weight then internalize that bias, right? They turn it towards themselves where they feel because they have the knowledge they were taught in medical school that they shouldn't have this weight issue, that it's something wrong with them, not something wrong with what we were actually taught in medical school. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm always amazed because when I argue that clearly obesity should be perceived as a fat accumulation disorder, often people who suffer from obesity perceive it as a personal failure. It's hard not to perceive it as a personal failure, whether you're a physician or not. You've been told what to do. And for this book, I, I read the memoirs of writers who have struggled with obesity. So like Roxane Gay has a beautiful memoir called Hunger. And she believes she was raped by a boy when she was, I think, was 13 years old. And she believes that that sort of triggered overeating, binge eating behavior in her. And that's what caused her what became massive obesity. Tommy Tomlinson, a sports writer, has a wonderful memoir called The Elephant in the Room, which is one of the great titles considering the book. And Tommy weighed over 400 pounds. I interviewed him for the book and he knew we had a voracious appetite. He was always hungry. So he assumed that's why he was so fat. And I would say, well, Tommy, I had a voracious appetite. I was never got up, you know, I weighed half what you did. And my brother 
had a voracious appetite and couldn't put on weight if you tried. It's, you know, it's a fat accumulation problem. If you think about it like that, first of all, then you realize that it's like any chronic disorder. I mean, it's not behavioral. It's not personal. It's not nothing you've done, but it is something that we can work to fix. And that's then the question becomes, how do you fix it? And what's the trigger? What triggers it with diet? Because we know it's not always triggered. There are different environmental environments, sort of diet and environments, which won't trigger this obese and diabetic phenotype. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about insulin then, because that's kind of the crux of it, right? You know, what I find fascinating is, number one, again, in medical school, we were obviously never taught. We were taught about insulin, how it functioned, and I could draw out all the effects of insulin. And we were taught about insulin and controlling blood sugars, but like Mm -hmm. that connection of high insulin levels block fat lipolysis and your ability to use fatty acids as fuel, that piece was never connected, you know. And I remember as a practicing physician, that aha moment when I realized in the type 2 diabetics that their blood sugars were elevated and we're trying to work on their weight to make their blood sugars better. But then we're increasing their insulin to improve those blood sugars that it just made no sense at all. (laughs) That it was just increasing the core root of the issue. And my mind was blown. Like I remember when I came to that, I was like, what? (laughs) Why do we do this? Why was I taught this? I can explain. That's my next book, by the way. And I'm trying to, it's an interesting point in the diabetes world in particular. So until insulin comes along in 1921, this standard of care for diabetes is what they call the animal diet, which is in effect a ketogenic diet. It's a high fat, meat, fish, fowl, green vegetables. And you boiled the green vegetables three times to minimize the carbohydrate content in them. That sounds delicious. (laughs) And yeah, really. And then the, um, Actually, the guy who pioneered that was French, and he got credit for like moving a little bit of, you know, sort of French culinary thinking into the diabetes world. And then insulin comes along, and now you need, they've not really differentiated. They don't know that those we would call type 2 diabetics today were insulin resistant. They assume they're all deficient in insulin, so pretty much everyone gets insulin, even though they know they can control the older, heavier people with diabetes, with diet, with this diet, that that'll control it. But they start giving people insulin. Now you need carbs to balance the insulin. So hypoglycemia doesn't exist until insulin therapy comes along. And in fact, Banting and Best in Toronto create the first case of hypoglycemia when they're testing insulin on their dogs before giving it to humans. That's the first observed case ever of hypoglycemia. And then what happens is as time goes on, physicians argue between good control of blood sugars are really necessary. Should we control diet and use diet and insulin? Or is it okay to let our patients just eat what they want because they're going to do what they want anyway, and we could just cover that with insulin? And then they have oral diabetic drugs come in. And remember, I mentioned randomized controlled trials don't come around until the 1940s. So the randomized controlled trials are used to test the oral hypoglycemic agents. They never test diets. So the tests are never done to see whether or not diabetics will do better on low-carbohydrate diets than on the standard of care, which includes a lot of carbs to continue to balance out the insulin, especially as insulins get better and longer-lasting. You have to spread the carbs out over the course of the day. And they just never do the studies. Never done. They just never get around to it. And nobody thinks to do it. Interesting. You end up in this situation where you're taught something is dogmatically true because it kind of works and that it keeps patients alive. And then they assume 
that any contrary dietary fad diets, they assume are unsustainable. We don't have to test them because they're unsustainable. And that's still today, as more and more physicians, as more and more the medical establishment has to sort of confront this challenge from low carbohydrate or carbohydrate restricted thinking, the argument is what well, doesn't really matter what those people say because it's unsustainable. Yeah, which again is weight bias, right? Like it go that this it's unsustainable goes back to the idea of those people just will eat too much versus like and it's a very disempowering thought to offer to people who struggle with weight is this may help you and you could lose weight rapidly say with Atkins back in the 90s, but you know what you'll never keep it going, so why bother? Well, I- Versus trusting them that maybe if people have the knowledge and see the changes in themselves, maybe they will make it sustainable or a certain percent will, just like is true for anything in medicine. Yeah. I mean, we would never argue that smoking cessation is not beneficial because people have so much trouble quitting smoking. Yeah. Here again, one of the things that happens when a scientific community sort of is working with a failed paradigm for so long as they embrace all kinds of rationalizations. The philosophy of science terminology is epicycles. So back when you thought that the planets had to move in perfect circles and it didn't match what you saw in the sky, the astronomers had to to add epicycles. And then when they got their theory right with Newton's laws of gravity and you realize that they move in ellipses, you could get rid of the epicycles and the theory becomes simple and it matches what you see. So here they had these epicycles. So because they've been telling people to eat less and exercise more for so long and none of their patients sustain weight loss, they assume that nobody adheres to a diet. That's simple. They don't question whether their dietary philosophy is wrong. They just assume that nobody follows. That's why you need your own experience to question your philosophy, your underlying beliefs. Then we add on top of this the idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. So if dietary fat causes heart disease, which was my second investigative article for science and isn't supported by the evidence or by compelling evidence. But if that's true, then we have to replace the fat in our diet with some things. We have to eat carbohydrates. So carbohydrates have to be heart healthy. So any diet that doesn't include carbohydrates is obviously bad for you. And then we have a belief that an eating disorder, you can define an eating disorder as believing that you shouldn't eat a particular food group. So this is one of the definitions. So if you're being told don't eat carbohydrates or fattening, clearly if you that's bad advice because that's the kind of advice that gives people eating disorders. You hear this a lot with why you shouldn't advise low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets for children because you will, quote, create an eating disorder. And they might be right. They might be right when it comes to kids. They might be right. But the argument that I've been making and that I'm focusing on in this book is if We get fat because of insulin dysregulation. If that's the link to diet, and that's textbook medicine, and carbohydrate content of our diet effectively regulates our insulin levels. And the third piece of this is fat tissue is exquisitely sensitive to insulin. That's a phrase that you actually read in the literature on fat storage and metabolism. So if there's even the slightest bit of insulin in the bloodstream, your fat cells will hold on to the fat that they've accumulated. So they'll be in fat storage mode with just a tiny bit of insulin. Not enough to increase glucose uptake in lean tissue is still enough to keep fat locked up in fat tissue. And so if you want to mobilize the fat, if you're storing too much fat, you want to mobilize and use it for fuel, then the implication is you have to minimize your insulin levels and maximize the amount of time that insulin is low. 
the phrase that I use in the book, which was from a banting address by Rosalind Yalow and Solomon Burst. And it's 1965. So Gallo and Burson invented the radioimmunoassay that's used to allow endocrinologists to measure hormone levels in the bloodstream. And it revolutionized medicine. And Gallo won the Nobel Prize for it in 1977. Burson had died by then. In 1965, they said that the fat tissue, the signal for your fat to mobilize fat is the, they called it the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. So as insulin drops, it gets below a certain level. The fat tissue doesn't see it anymore. Now lipolysis kicks up. It's been inhibited by the insulin. Now it kicks back on. The triglycerides are broken down into fatty acids. The fatty acids are dumped into the bloodstream. And now your lean tissue will use them for fuel. But you got to get to that negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. And the way you do that is, in effect, the way you know you're doing it, is by minimizing carbohydrate content. And so that brings up the big question that I'm sure you get a lot of, okay, how much is the right amount of carbohydrate? I know I get that a lot. Like everybody wants the macros. How many macros of carbs should you be eating? And because keto is so popular right now in social media and media, I find often when I speak of lower carbohydrate eating, people automatically, and our brains like to be restrictive about weight loss, right? So they automatically think, well, that has to be keto. But what are your thoughts on it? Okay, so, and my thoughts are in part, remember, informed by interviews with 120 or so of your colleagues, many of whom are in Canada, by the way. I use a phrase, I go back to the very first writer who really promoted the idea that carbohydrate, that obesity is caused by carbohydrate consumption, starches, grains, and sweets. And this was a French gastronome named uh, Jean-Antoine Briat-Savarin, who in 1825, published a book called The Physiology of Taste, which has been in print ever since. I think the Bible is the only other book I know that's been in print for 200 years. Now, the only other nonfiction book, I should rephrase that. Anyway, Briat Savran counseled more or less rigid abstinence from carbohydrates. And I come back to this phrase. I'm always trying to put this in a historical perspective because these are diets are referred to as fad diets, whereas the reality is the low-fat diet that we had been told to eat was the fad diet that was more or less invented in the 1960s. The idea that carbohydrates were fattening was conventional wisdom through the 19 until then. So more or less rigid abstinence. We're all different, right? So there are people who want to lose, who are 15 pounds overweight and would like to get back to their college running weight, whatever it was, and they, they can probably tolerate more carbs than someone who was 400 pounds and would like to lose 200 pounds of it. I worry about, so the physicians I interviewed, you know, again, they're confronted with obese and diabetic patients, patients with obesity and diabetes, and they want to make them healthy. And so they thought of what they were doing as getting them off carbs. Again, trying to get them to abstain from carbohydrates and replace those calories with fat. So you're getting them off sugars, grains, starchy vegetables, and you eat green vegetables and regrettably animal products, meat, fish, fowl, processed or not, doesn't matter, dairy. So nobody I talked to thought in terms of macros. It was just, I want to get my patients to realize that fat is benign. It's not going to kill them as they've come to think. And that the problem for their physiology is a carbohydrate content of the diet. And I want to try and get them off of it. None of them even bothered with ketosis or keto. Certainly didn't measure ketones or advocate measuring ketones. If they had a patient who insisted 
that he was abstaining from, you know, starches, sweets, and grains, and but still was showed no metabolic improvement. So lipid numbers weren't improving, or his hemoglobin A1C wasn't improving. And if weight wasn't improving, they would then think about, you know, checking ketone levels to as a way to confirm whether or not this person is really following the dietary advice, or are they cheating? There's a lot of different ways people would, you know, patients particularly would sort of confuse themselves into eating foods that weren't recommended. So the idea of good carbs, for instance, beans and legumes is something that's constantly being broadcast to us that this is what we can eat. But if we're still 50 pounds overweight and we don't want to be 50 pounds overweight, maybe these are not foods we should eat. So, you know, personally, I would argue for, I think the best thing is to minimize carbs and get through, you know, I was an ex-smoker, so I tend to think, I am an ex-smoker, so I tend to think of things from that addictive point of view, as did many of these physicians. And cold turkey, basically, I know that three weeks, I'm going to be very unhappy, and then I'll start to get over it. And after a year or two, I'll see what life is like without my, whatever my addiction happens to be. And I'm most likely going to find out that I'm in a much better place. But that's a long way of saying well, I don't think it's a good idea to enter into this asking what's the most I can eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, and you used to hear this, not as much anymore, but you used to be, can I eat this kind of bread or can I do this or what about, you know? And if you're asking, the answer is probably don't and see what mm-hmm. happens. Let me tell you one story I just do. I co-founded a not-for-profit that helped fund a study at Stanford called the Diet Fit Study. And they, what we liked about the study is they were going to randomize subjects into a low-carb versus a low-fat diet. They were going to get the low-fat as low as they could go and the low-carb as low as they could go. So ideally, these people would be on ketogenic diets. That was the ideal. It didn't work out anything like that. But a couple of years ago, I was in Aspen, I was talking to a young woman at a diabetes conference who had been a student at Stanford and had been in this trial on the low-carb arm. And she was, she said she had started, she weighed around 240 pounds and she was showing me her weight on her, she had it charted on an iPhone app. And in the first few months of the trial, she rigidly abstained from carbohydrates and she lost 30 pounds in three months. And then the investigators, the Stanford investigators, sort of urged them to add a little bit of carbohydrates back. They had this kind of perverted sense of what the Atkins diet was, an Atkins program. And so and they didn't want subjects dropping out because there's nothing worse in these trials, nothing more expensive than a subject you have for three or six months who then drops out of the trial. So at three months, she added berries back. And over the next three months, she lost five pounds. And then at the six-month point, she once again urged to add some carbohydrates back. So she added some good carbs, just a little bit, and didn't lose another pound. So at the end of the year, she had a 35-pound weight loss. But as long as she was rigidly abstaining, her weight was plummeting. And at the end of the year, to her, it wasn't really all that much worth it. I mean, 30 pounds was nice, but it required restrictions that didn't really balance. My point was, had she stuck with rigid abstinence, had she never added back the berries to begin with, that 30-pound weight loss might have ended up at a 60 or a 90-pound weight loss. And she might have found if she got down to 150 pounds, a weight she hadn't been at since junior high school, that she didn't miss the berries anymore. And she didn't miss the good carbs. And she didn't miss sweets. That maintaining good health was worth the sacrifice. 
And often people don't give themselves the opportunity to find out what the sacrifice is worth. And then there's this phenomenon that we deal with where since you're shifting your body from burning carbs to burning fat, you would expect that you lose the carb cravings, you know, pasta and bagels after a while stop being the foods you you're craving and you develop in effect cravings for fatty foods instead, which is had been demonstrated in the animal research in the 1930s and is anecdotally reported all the time in human studies. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that speaks to the kind of loophole in conventional diet thinking of like, okay, I'll do this to lose the weight and then then I can go back to normal and really for the low carb lifestyle to actually work to be a sustainable long-term weight loss strategy, you have to just do it for the rest of your life. That's the issue is, and this is why my second book was called Why We Get Fat. If you understand what's triggering the obesity, you know, again, we could use sort of genetic terminology. We have this manifestation of this obese diabetic phenotype, and it's triggered by our environment. So we want to know what is it in the environment that turns our genotype from something that would otherwise be benign into this obese diabetic phenotype. And there's copious evidence that it's the carbs in the diet. The sugars are probably the sort of original sin there and sugary beverages, and maybe not in our generation, even in our, like our parents' generation, because it's passed down from mother to child in the womb. But if you understand that carbohydrates are the problem, then you just think of it as carbohydrates make you fat, which is the logic here, right or wrong, that's the logic, then there's no, never any justification to going back to eating them without thinking that they will then make you fat when you go back to doing it. The problem is, is the conventional wisdom is we get fat because we eat too much, and then you're supposed to sustain basically hunger, eating not enough for the rest of your life, and we know that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've all tried that one. Yeah, we all tried that one. <laughs> it works so well. Can you let people know where to find you if they want to read the new book or learn more about what you do? Well, I have a website, GaryTalbs.com. I tweet at GaryTalbs. The book is available, you know, if there's a independent bookstore that's open in your neighborhood or that takes orders, please use it. Otherwise, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and online, but... I'm all for keeping our bookstores alive as long as we can. I do want to say that I really, the book is called, the, the title is The Case for Keto. I wrote it, well, for people who are struggling with this and need sort of ways to think about this to make it easier and then learning how to self-experiment so when they stall or problems arise, you know, how to think about it, fixing that. And again, there's some of the really, really smart lessons I learned from the physicians I interviewed, but also for your physicians, the other, for those people who say like, this is just still, this is quackery, or I can't do this with my patients, or this is too dangerous, or they still think in terms of renal failure and all this sort of, you know, this is probably now the most well-tested dietary pattern in history, certainly the most well-tested over the last 20 years. And clinical trial after clinical trial is consistent in that this way of eating makes people healthier. That's an excellent spot to end it. Mm -hmm. oh. I got asked a thing about the renal failure today in the office. Keeps coming up. Like I said, was in medical school. Keeps coming up. You know, the more I read this stuff, more I read about medical science. You know, back in the 1910s, there are people arguing that diabetics shouldn't eat 
carb-restricted diets because their ketone levels will go up, and that could precipitate diabetic ketoacidosis. And there are German and Austrian research saying that diabetic ketoacidosis is an entirely different thing than the kind of ketosis you see in during fasting and carbohydrate restriction. There are orders of magnitude different. You cannot assume that because they both involve ketones, one is going to naturally lead to the other. In 1960s, a leading metabolism researcher in America, George Kao at Harvard University, published his paper after paper showing that ketones are a natural aspect of you know, metabolism, that they're there to fuel the brain during periods of when we're going without eating and we're going without eating carbohydrates and they're completely benign and may even be beneficial. It has no impact on how the medical community thinks about the disorder. You know, a small group of people start studying ketogenic diets, but that was 60 years ago now. It's really, uh, it's as though because of the demands of medicine that you have to, you don't have time for theory, you don't have time for really long-term research trials. You're supposed to treat your patients now so you do what you've been taught to do. You're supposed to treat them and you're supposed to use standard of care. And standard I think care. is where we get tripped up as physicians, right? And where it can feel so difficult to do something that potentially is perceived not standard of care, like prescribe a different diet. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. It's dangerous. If something goes wrong, you're responsible. If you prescribe standard of care and something goes wrong, you're covered. You did nothing mm -hmm. wrong. So you take the same patient who's two weeks away from a heart attack and you tell them to eat a low-fat, mostly plant diet, and they have a heart attack, nobody sues you. If you tell them to eat a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet, you've got a malpractice suit on your hand. And in mm -hmm. both cases, it's everything that happened before they saw you that led to the heart attack. That said, I have to say, knock on wood, since I did my first somewhat infamous New York Times Magazine article on this in 2002, I have never been contacted by someone's next of kin in 18 years, or their lawyers, and I would have expected that by now, just by chance, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Well, thank you, Siobhan. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Gary. It's been a real pleasure to sit and chat. There was so much really good information in that interview. I hope that you found something to take away from it that helped inform you. If you have any questions, send me an email at info at weight solutions for physicians. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider taking the time to leave a review. Those really help the podcast get found and consider sharing it with somebody that you think might also benefit from it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.